Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Phil Dolly, and welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Today, why Russia supports their tough guy. It is hard to support everything that Vladimir Putin does. He probably is involved in that attack in Salisbury. If not, there's numerous other violations of human rights we can point to, but he does have a lot of support in Russia. And to understand why, you need to understand the recent past and what Russia is trying to achieve. Today on the Debunking Economics podcast, a quick history lesson of a country that struggled through false theories and bad advice to arrive at a point where it could finally integrate with the rest of the world. That's if someone doesn't blow it up first. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. So it's, it's not pure economics, but I guess it does relate to the economy and it certainly relates to the state of the world right now with all the questions about how Russia is supposedly manipulating the West and does it interfere with elections? Is it trying to disunite the West? And of course, what about the role of those Russian oligarchs as well, buying up London property and perhaps killing lots of people in the process? Uh, so, <laughs> Steve, this is a long way from economics. How can we bring this back to you know what we're supposed to be talking about? Or do you think there is a link here somehow? Well, there's a huge link. I mean, the, the whole um, people are just reacting to the events in the news today. You know, uh, Russian uh, drug, um, Russian developed drug used to poison ex-Russian agent in England, and bang, we're uh, you know we're, we're exchanging messages uh, that seem a bit like the ones that were sent out before the start of World War One. Mm. Uh, and if if that's all you know, if you just know the event, you know there is a. We, I'm not going to argue that there was not. We haven't seen a photograph of him yet, but we know his his daughter's recovering. We know a Russian and his daughter were poisoned in Salisbury uh, using an agent which was first developed by the Russians and uh, may or may not have been uh, developed by them and deployed by them. So that's, that's, a, that's a given. If that's all you react to, it's time to get out the drums of war. And that seems to be what's happening right now. And uh, I don't want to discuss the... Uh, you know, the uh, or, or is, or is, it, just, is, it, is it just a diversion? And, uh, you know, that uh, from time to time, uh, when, when you're struggling, like, for example, trying to find a, a solution to Brexit, uh, you know, it's, it's good to have a diversion, isn't it? Uh, because people... Yeah, well, I'd, I'd rather diversions that don't involve the possibility of being, being uh, <laughs> eliminated from the face of the planet by a, a blast of, of gamma rays. Mm. Um, so that's, that's why I think it's extremely important to give a bit of background here and say, okay, why why might might it be that Russia doesn't particularly feel fond of the West? Uh, yeah. And because this this is the, the, the background here, there's it's antagonism, animosity, uh, and there are lots of uh, recent political events you can identify. You can identify what happened in Ukraine. You can talk about Crimea. You've got Syria, obviously. There's plenty of these political and military conflicts. But you need a bit of economic history, a bit of background to see why it might be that Russia doesn't feel all that fond of the West uh, and and whether you know who's who's the more aggrieved party here? Does the West have more reason to be angry about Russia or vice versa? So I I spoke to a guy called Alexander Nekrasov, who's a, a former advisor to the Kremlin. I spoke to him on my radio show uh, about what's happening right now. In in the in the middle of all of this, he said, "What we have to understand is that Russia is still not a developed nation. You know that." Uh, 
we uh, we we have to. I mean, he you know had a lot a lot to say against uh, the way the West is is treating Russia right now. Mm. But it, but his answer was Russia is still evolving as well. It's not it's not a, a state that has uh, settled itself in, in a way because of it's had such a history of turmoil and it's not there yeah. yet. Yeah, well, let's go back to the beginning of the turmoil because, yeah. uh, I mean... Uh, we a couple all, of revolutions, we, for example. Well, yeah, I mean, because you, I, I prefer to start with the with 1914 because uh, at that stage you still had a hereditary uh, um, czarist system in yeah. Russia. Uh, and the hereditary czar, Nicholas II or third, I, I don't know my history of that well. Second, yeah. Not second, this, uh, made a number of stupid decisions which led to the outbreak of World War One, mm. And uh, Russia was quite unprepared for the battle. Uh, it lost large numbers of troops uh, to, the, to the Germans. It had all sorts of catastrophes. Well, it did that having done the same thing against Japan, of, of yeah. course, as well. Yeah. I mean, they that lost... The 1905, yeah. the 1905 dispute. So you can go back to 1905 as well. Uh, the last time they had a Russian who actually seemed to know what he's doing in the military affairs needs to be Russia the Great or was it with Catherine the Great. Uh, but if you're not called the Great, you're a lousy Russian ruler, it seems, and, and that's, that was the case for Nicholas. And that led of, to the rise of the, the, the Bolshevik Party, which uh, the communists were, of course, a, a major uh, you know, element in politics right from uh, 1848, uh, when a couple of blokes in England scribbled out a thing they called the Communist Manifesto. Um, but they had far more impact in Russia, courtesy of the disaster of the Second of the First World War, uh, leading people to just you know, abandon the trust in the in the czarist system in Bang. You had the, the 1917 revolt. You had the successful Bolshevik takeover. You then had the white Russians versus the, the, the uh, red Russians. Yeah. Incredible civil war. And at the end of it all, the Bolsheviks found themselves ruling a country which part of the Communist Party, and certainly Marx and Engels, didn't believe should go through straight from feudalism to socialism. Well, it was a decimated country yeah. as well. I mean, because of all that uncertainty, I mean, they had massive famine, uh, that all, yeah. you know, millions of people had been killed in those wars and then, of course, killed in the civil war as well. So it was a, yeah. uh, a, a, a country in disarray, that's for sure. Yeah, and of course the West was, because the Communist Party was making a political challenge to the capitalist West at the time, then a lot of the Western powers supported the white Russians against the, against the Soviets and lost. And of course, that didn't set up the relations weren't going to be good to begin with. That didn't exactly uh, mm. put them off on a, a good keel either. You then have a, a period set, set of different phases. The, the, the there was sort of a market uh, market socialism phase. Uh, there was the electrification phase, trying to turn this basically feudal country into to leapfrog capitalism and turn it into industrial nation, not overnight, but with a series of five-year plans. And the point that I want to start with in terms of those five-year plans is the work of a Russian engineer called Feldman, uh, because his uh, reinterpretation of Marx and turning Marx's uh, analysis of capitalism into a, a, a effectively a broad program for industrialization uh, was, I think, the, the, the core not the only reason, but a major reason why the Soviet system failed, mm. uh, which led to the to the um, to the collapse of the Soviet system. You know, back in, uh, another eight, eighty years further on in the nineteen nineties. So this is and this was Stalin's plan, five year plan, wasn't it? Yeah, but the, the five year plans. Uh, you know, it, by the way, I have read one work of Stalin, and this is back. I never like trusting what somebody else tells me. Somebody says, so I, I prefer to go back to the source. And I remember vividly remember reading 
I even virtually remember the chair I was sitting in when I read it. It was in what's called the Stack Official Library in Sydney University back in, I think, 1972. And here I am reading Problems of Communism by Joseph Stalin. And the, most of it was quite the first, I don't know how far I got it, maybe 60 or 70 pages in, was quite a reasonable statement of the situation of agriculture, different sections of industry, the different regions of Russia and so on. Quite careful and considered, I thought. And then there was this one phrase that I virtually fell out of my chair when I read it. And it said something to the effect of all the, pre all the foregoing is irrelevant. Russian industry is advancing at leaps and bounds. Anyone who does not believe this is a sworn enemy of the Russian people. <laughs> and I went, holy, you can imagine the expletive I, I used, holy F. It's fake news, in other words. It sounds well, I mean, like, yeah. what, you just, just imagine you're a statistician in the rules or somewhere about to report a, a, pro, you know, a 5 to 10% decline in the wheat crop. Mm. You read that, oh, my God, I'm going to be a sworn enemy of the Russian people. If I publish that, the next thing I know, they're going to be commissars taking me away to shoot me or even worse, send me to the gulag and then shoot me. Um, I'm going to change that minus to a plus. Yeah. Now, that, so that, that's, that's the background that most people have to say why Russia failed. They identify the role of Stalin and say that led to all those catastrophes. Well, but even, be, but even before Stalin, I mean, during, you know, after, that, after the Civil War, they basically nationalized everything, didn't they? And, uh, you know, the, the government owned all the land. And then during Lenin, we had, uh, that was eased off a little bit, but that didn't work terribly well. And uh, so Stalin took it back again. I mean, it's- so it's the, collectivism and so on. But yeah. Like a, if you, the, it's, it's really important in analysing events like this to, yes, okay, to know your history, know with a particular individual involved and the great man or the lousy man theory of history, sure, that, that matters. But it's also important to know what, what would have happened had they done exactly what they said they were going to do. Mm. Would that have worked? And when you look at what uh, Feldman proposed, he took Marx's uh, very advanced at the time analysis of capitalism by dividing it into two or three sectors. He had a sector producing consumption goods and a sector producing investment goods and talked about the relationship between the two. So the investment sector needed to buy goods from the consumption sector and so on and so forth. And what Feldman did as an engineer was simplify his analysis, and this is a big mistake, simplified his analysis by presuming that consumption goods needed investment goods to be produced, but investment goods didn't need consumption goods. Okay, so if you if you produce more investment goods, you automatically can produce more both investment goods and consumption goods. But consumption goods, the investment goods themselves, did not need the output of the consumption sector to produce. Whereas right. Mark had all these very careful interrelations between actually had the, the, the generally worked with the two sector model, but in fact his most advanced stuff had three sectors: workers' consumption, capitalist consumption, and investment goods producing both themselves and producing the means of production of consumer goods. So build and it build it, and they'll come, in other words. Build, build it and we'll grow. And this was the mm. basic argument that Feldman sold to the, uh, to the first to Stalin and then to Khrushchev. I'm, I'm, I don't actually know. I might look up. We'd better look up Feldman's history and see whether he ended up in the gulags. I'm sure he did. Virtually everybody did a work for Stalin at some stage. Uh, but what uh, he proposed was that if you focus on building the means of production, then even though you'll have less consumption than you could have if you had a balanced approach to the economy, producing both investment goods and consumption goods, over time you'll accumulate such a level of, of uh, production facilities that you'll be able to produce oodles of goods and there'll be a cornucopia for everybody. Mm. He basically promised a socialist cornucopia by producing, focusing on producing the means of production 
rather than producing consumer goods, which was the orientation of the West. And of course, the West had to produce investment goods as well, but it was, you know, seen as being a more consumer focused story. So was that, so they, so they developed, so they developed heavy industry basically, didn't they? Yeah, very much so. Um, But wasn't that part of it sort of like a a defense against the West as well? So, you know, that was also the second world war got in the way. And of course they had to relocate production away from where the, where the, uh, the Germans were so they couldn't be bombed and they could produce their, their tanks and go back in the other direction. So all that historical detail is there as well. But the fundamental idea that, 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 that uh, underlay Feldman's thinking was, first of all, the cons- investment goods didn't need consumer goods for, to produce them. Now, of course, there is no such thing as a division of industry into consumer goods and investment goods. Mm. Uh, there are, of course, you don't you don't go shopping to buy your, your you know blast furnace for your kitchen. Uh, so there are things which are strictly investment goods that produce you know, massive, massive products like steel. But even a steel plant will need goods which we otherwise would call consumer goods, such as, for example, electric lights. Uh, you need to see where that, where all that multi line ore is flowing. So there are the, this, the neat classification is it's a classification thing rather than strictly being true about the two. So what it means is you're abstracting from the fact that you need lots and lots of different commodities to produce all sorts of commodities, some of which are generally used for investment, others generally used for consumption. But he simplified all that down and said you could just grow consumer goods by producing more uh, investment goods that, that could make those, more, more factories that could make those consumer goods. And you would be better off, you'd grow, you'd grow consumer output more slowly if you focus upon building factories rather than consumer goods. But ultimately, you'll have so many factories that you'll have so much consumer goods, you'll overtake the West and it'll be a worker's uh, cornucopia, a worker's socialist paradise. I am having immense difficulty understanding the logic here. So, uh, except well, for the well, fact, so so they build factories. Those factories employ people. People are employed. Therefore, they're they're taking money home. Therefore, they can buy stuff made in those factories. Well, the thing is, they can't buy the stuff because you weren't making much of the stuff. You're making less right. consumer goods than you were if you yeah. leave it to a typical market system or, or analysis. But but over time, because you're building so many factories, you'd ultimately have so, so many factories per worker, effectively, that you'd have a cornucopia. But there was one slight problem. Feldman assumed there was a limitless supply of peasants who could become industrial workers. Mm. There wasn't. And right. what, what happened, happened was, with that proposal, you rapidly... Uh, eliminated unemployment. You had, a, particularly after the Second World War, when you had to rebuild all the factories and change over from military production to uh, consumer good production, plus you know making more of those factories to produce consumer goods and produce other factories as well. There was rapid um, uh, growth in output, rapid uh, fall in the level of underemployed workers. Then you got to full employment. Now, once you get full employment you couldn't grow output faster than labour supply grew unless you were doing technological development. And that's something that Feldman, literally, I'm speaking from having read his papers, of course, thought you could leave until such time as you reached this point of full employment. But once you got to the point of full employment, what it meant was that the, the, the growth of the factories also slowed down because you simply couldn't produce the factories without extra workers to staff the, you know, the factories making the factories. Yeah. And production slumped. And at that point, you had... a a socialist leadership committed to the idea of building the means of production rather than the means of consumption. What do they do at that point? They continued focusing upon the means of production. What it meant in an abstract sense as well as actually in practice, the level of consumer goods output actually fell. So, so it's, a, have, it's a classic case of a misallocation of resources then, isn't it, really? In that, that sense, yeah, that's how the Austrians would interpret it and so on. In that sense, they're not wrong. Uh, but what could have happened and didn't happen was what Feldman proposed at the end. Once we get to this point, let's start innovating and, and devoting our time to producing 
uh, more advanced goods rather than trying to produce a larger number of, you know, cookie cutter factories producing the same old output. Mm. Uh, so that was one problem. And the second problem was um, to, to fill the plan, Every what, what you had, and this is where the work of, of the Hungarian economist called Janos Kornai is extremely important. Kornai uh, identified that in the socialist system, because you had full employment, you had a shortage of resources. You were at, at the margin, possibly even over the margin. Therefore, no particular would get all the resources it needed. Therefore, every sector was resource constrained. Now, that had two, two outcomes. One is output was almost less than you wanted to have. You're always getting less output because you'd only actually reach your planned resource constraint if everything worked. And of course, not everything worked. Uh, therefore, every factor is under, undershooting its targets. And you also, because you had such pressure to get a quantitative set of targets out, the easiest way to reach that quantitative target was to produce more of what you produced last year, innovation, which is completely off the menu. And uh, I have a particular um, uh, personal um, um, experience of this because my girlfriend back in 1975, 76, uh, had a brother who was um, um, wanted to buy a motorcycle but couldn't afford a, a Japanese a Kawasaki, a Yamaha, a Suzuki. And he found he could buy a Russian Cossack for $1 per cc when the going price was about $5 per cc if you're buying a, a Kawasaki or a, or a Yamaha. So rather than paying 3000 Australian dollars, he could pay 650 Australian dollars and get a 650 cc Cossack motorbike. And I helped him unpack it. Steve McQueen would have been right at home. It was a <laughs> 1942 BMW complete with a bicycle seat. Yeah, so not a lot of innovation there. You've told told us that story before, but yeah. Oh, well, so, there you go. I'm boring. So, no, no, that's a, no, I would never, never say that at all. Of course not. But um, so, 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 because you'd sort of like, because you had this cozy relationship between the state and this means of production, there was no room for innovation. Is is, is yeah, what you had you're no saying. innovation going on. You had and you had a, a deliberate policy to suppress production of consumer goods for the workers. And on top of that, the liberal policy was failing because the liberal policy assumed a limitless supply of workers, you know, peasants who become industrial workers, which didn't exist. So you were then, you reached a, 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 a period of low growth, mm. but to make it worse, you then continued to prioritise heavy industry. So the aggregate level of output also fell. And the only way you could get goods was by paying for them one year and getting them a decade later. Uh, which So what it meant was, and this comes back to the, the classic statement that Khrushchev made back in 1962, I think it was, uh, shortly only he took over from Stalin in 58, I think, and denounced him. In, he either took over in 56 and denounced him in 58 or something of that nature. And talking to a group of, uh, of diplomats at one stage in um, Russia, he did a very undiplomatic thing, the sort of thing Donald Trump or uh, what's that, what's that blonde-haired twit in England? Boris. Boris Johnson, how could you forget? He's got, yeah, he's yeah. got the right name, hasn't he, Boris? <laughs> um, what, what a twit like one of those twits could say, he said, we will bury you. Now, what he meant by we will bury you fundamentally was we'll bury you in, in consumer goods output that will be so great your workers will want to abandon you and come over to socialism. That mm. was the vision they had. Well, it failed abjectly, of course, and what you then had about a 30-year period from when you hit that full employment constraint and in, in having got rid of Stalin and uh, liberalised things to some extent, improving the GOS plan and so on, you're pretty much talking from Khrushchev's time on, you'd hit the full employment level. Now, at full employment, when you're paying people uh, uh, money to work in factories where they can't actually use that money to buy anything other than basic commodities, um, the result was that Russian workers began to, to, to do the, the classic classic line that they you'll, you'll hear in Soviet jokes, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. Mm. 
So even on that, so there's three things coming under me that the Soviet system grows more slowly, has less innovation, and it, it has lots of disgruntled, um, suppressed consumers who are yearning for what they can see happening in the, you know, we're talking the 1960s here, the, the, uh, the, 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 the um, Carnaby Street West looks incredibly attractive. So rather than the workers of capitalism wanting wanting socialism, you've got the workers of socialism pining for capitalism. There was a, that, the, mm, yeah. there was a great Peter, I think it was Peter Cook movie, where there was a whole lot of people, who, you might have seen it, where a whole lot of people were working for a company and then there was this breakaway movement. They all, all were doing their bit, um, but they weren't really quite sure what the company made. And so they, uh, there was this underground movement that set about trying to find out what the company actually produced. And in the end, they discovered the, uh, the, the shocking news that the company didn't actually make anything at all. It just employed people. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but uh, which are you know, maybe the problem is, of course, you can run out of people to employ. But I'm I'm struggling with the example you gave of why the motorcycle would be so cheap. If you've got, because it seems like a wholly oh, no, it wasn't in, cheap at all. It wasn't cheap for a Russian. See, the, sure. again, because they yeah. needed again, they needed foreign imports. They were selling these things cheaply in the national market to get foreign currency. Right. Okay. So because I would have thought the whole thing would Australia. be this would be you far more in Russia at all. Yeah, and it would be much more, much more expensive to produce in this way, surely, because you don't get that innovation, you don't get the economies of scale, you don't get that yeah. diversification, all the all, all all the good stuff, which is going to bring competition, which is going to bring prices yeah. down. Yeah. Um, so you, what you had was. Uh, you know, a, a disgruntled workforce wanting wanting change. The plan hadn't worked, and boom, people were clamouring for for socialism. Along comes um, what's his name, the bloke with a, um, a, a Gorbachev. Gorbachev comes along and tries perestroika to try to liberalise the system and bring in some elements of the market and within this, this constraints of the Soviet system. Uh, but that basically falls apart, and of course, the Americans are absolutely gleeful to see this happen. And we have the election of Yeltsin, which they proudly just playing that they helped cause Yeltsin get elected by sorts of dirty tricks played against his opponents and so on. All the stuff they're now criticising Russia for do, they happily did, and you'll find it, of course, on the cover of Time magazine, that they did this to undermine what was what, what was the beginnings of Russian democracy to make sure the guy the Americans wanted got elected rather than anybody else. So that's... Mm. that's, that's, that's um, I know. U.S. interference with the Russian elections. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They interfered right. quite, quite, quite proudly and bragged about it and still brag about interfering. And, and you know, that's why I find the hypocrisy of them complaining about the Russians allegedly, and I'm sure they did, of course, allegedly interfering in their election. God knows which side they were trying to support. But the one little bit I, feel I left out of my commentary so far as well, and that's the rise of the Russian mafia. Mm. Because the Russian mafia didn't just spring up when when uh, Putin got uh, got elected. The Russian mafia was an integral part of the five year plan. Because if you imagine yourself as a as a factory manager having to fulfil a plan where you're not getting all the supplies you need in the first place, where the targets keep on increasing and you can never meet them, uh, and your promotion, your your position depends upon getting at least close to what the plan is supposed to be. The best way to do that is to get inputs that fall off the back of a truck. And uh, it's because there's lots of unemployed workers or, you know, fully employed workers that were doing bugger all. So part of what they're doing was going around taking stuff off the production line and selling it for a bit of extra money on the black, on the black market, whether to factories or to consumers and so on. So the mafia was oiled the wheels of the creaking socialist system was well and truly had 30 or 40 years of operation prior to the American decision to help the uh, Soviets transit to the market economy. And that's where all hell broke loose again. Mm. And so that becomes cultural. That becomes ingrained in the culture. Yeah, you've got a mafia culture. Everybody knows the mafia exists. Nobody talks about it, but everybody knows it's there. Uh, factory managers are dealing with the mafia 
on a it's not the Italian mafia. Of course, the mafia is a generic term, but you know that you you know you, you you're supposed to be prosecuting these guys. You're supposed to be stopping them. But you know at the same time you can't get your plan fulfilled unless you actually buy stuff off them. And then at the same time, uh, you're selling stuff to them from your plant and pocketing some of the money as well because your pay is lousy. So this whole mess is what the Americans thought they could turn from socialism to capitalism overnight uh, when you had the, uh, the Yeltsin getting to power and the proposal to shut down the Soviet system and go across to a market economy. Well, I'm sure if you ask Russians today, they'd say, well, we're a mixed economy, a bit like, you know, the UK, for example, was in the in the 1970s, which isn't a bad place to be. But is is that where they are? Well, they're a, they're a mixed economy now, but they're a mashed economy in the transition. And this is the part that was played an integral role in why people in Russia in general, have the respect for Putin they have right now, because this is the messing interpreted. And I really want to get this on the record because um, this is the sort of, you know, you, you had a failed attempt at central planning. And now you want to go across to a market economy. This is occurring, of course, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. You've got Reagan in power initially. Then you have Clinton after that. You have a triumphalism about American capitalism and about American economic theory. And I'll give you, I'm going to give you some quotes from here from papers I wrote some time ago, quoting some of these neoclassical morons. Is that strong enough emphasis, do you think? Yeah, uh, no, you can do it again if you want. Okay. You can do it harder. Go on. Morons. I'm sure you can. Okay. That's you, much better. Here's a guy called Murray Wilson, and I know him personally, so I'm quite happy to call him a moron because I've seen him perform in seminars <laughs> criticizing one of my papers. He speaks very highly of you, I'm sure. I'm a generous guy. Okay. Here he says in a paper called Transition from a Command Economy, Rational Expectations and Cold Turkey in the journal called Contemporary Policy Issues back in 1992. He says market systems are much more stable than most people who have been brought up in the in a command economy can imagine. The flexibility of the market system permits them to absorb a great deal of abuse and error that a rigidly planned system cannot endure. Now, that itself is true, mm. in general speaking, but it isn't true of Russia at the time they put these proposals forward. And what, uh, if I can find my favorite statement by Wolfson here, um, pardon me, I've got to do a bit of a search. Well, while you're doing that, is, I mean, isn't part of the problem that the, the transition tried to happen too quickly. So, for example, you know, if we go back to, uh, uh, for example, Lenin, you know, had his new economic policy, which was to try and be more market oriented, uh, to try and step back from the nationalization of industry. So individuals could own small enterprises, uh, the state owned the big banks and, uh, and, and big business. But it didn't work because Stalin came along and it, and it, had, and it had failed because it all ha- tried to happen too quickly. There needs to be a trans- America's transition period. America the same period. mistake in going to, from social into a market economy. Here's, here's Wolfson again. Um, he, he, what he's doing is that there's a particular part of, of, of uh, rational expectations theory where they work backwards from the future and then say what's going to happen um, one day before the, the transition occurs. For example, suppose the government were planning a gradual transition from a regime of administered prices to market prices to take place a year from now. What would happen 364 days hence? Obviously, haha, people would refuse to make any but the most urgent transactions at the old prices, or an illegal market would immediately spring up to the new prices. Those individuals who would have to sell their goods and services that are lower on a lower price on day 365 would find no legal customers on day 364. Similarly, those who would receive higher prices on day 364 would not sell legally on day 363, 362, 361, and so on. The economy would either come to a complete stop. Uh, or would legally or illegally anticipate the future 
in the face of rational and reasonably knowledgeable economic agents. This is hilarious, of course. We're talking Russians that had a demand economy of the last 70 years being seen as reasonably knowledgeable economic agents. Delay <laughs> invites disaster. Wait for this punchline. Central planners seemingly should at once resign their post and close their offices. Their departure simply would signal the market to move immediately to equilibrium. What absolute oh. cod swallop. There was no market. <laughs> the whole idea was about cranks to create a market. Well, there was the mafia. I'm sure they had a market. Well, this is the trouble, because the only mm. people who could move this quickly were the mafia, and along with yeah. also some of the some of the uh, factory bosses they used to deal with and Communist Party officials, who in this very, very rapid uh, uh, um, privatisation process grabbed all the state assets. And this is where the oligarchs came from. Now, I'll give you one more um one more piece that I just want to get on the record again because I'm going to be uh, saying some positive things about uh, Jeffrey Sachs at some stage, but I want to start with uh, with a good reason for, for negative ones uh, because um, he was also one of these at the time. He's no longer this nature at all. He's, he's very aware of the, the need to do things um, uh, gradually when you have massive transitions. But here's, here's Jeffrey Sachs. In the American Economist, a very appropriate journal, the paper called "The Economic Transformation of Eastern Europe: The Case of Poland," written in—I've got the date here. I can't see the date. 19, 1990. Okay. So the motivation for comprehensiveness and speed in introducing the reforms is clear, clear-cut. Such an approach vastly cuts the uncertainties facing the public with regard to the new rules of the game in the economy. This is rather like Wolfram's statement beforehand. Rather than creating a lot of turmoil, uncertainty, internal inconsistencies and political resistance through a gradual introduction of the new measures, the goal is to set in place clear incentives for the new economic system as rapidly as possible. As one shock, has, shock therapy, he called uh, it. Shock yeah. therapy. As, and here's, here's the punchline. As one wit has put it, if the British were to shift from left-hand drive to the right-hand side drive, should they do it gradually? Sage I just shifting the trucks over to the other side of the road on the first round. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, I'm sorry, this was the type of naive nonsense that was put forward as how Russia should make an incredibly complicated transition from a centrally planned system with all its various flaws we've outlined so far across to a market economy. Well, and yet he advised, didn't he, he, he advised Poland, though, didn't he? And he, yeah. he, he says that, you know, he introduced shock therapy yeah, yeah. in Poland and it worked for them. Ultimately, it did, but it killed. It was actually much worse. The, the polls actually slowed it down quite dramatically compared to how it happened in Russia. And I'll give my, my one of my personal anecdotes again uh, on the Russian transition because in 19, about 2007, I think I was invited to speak in uh, the Russian University of Humanities, and I was comparing notes about the departments with the head of the department at the time, and asking you know, how many staff have you got, and he gave me an answer. I forgot what it was. He said we had more. And I said, oh, what happened to them? And he gave me this querulous look and said, they died. I said, what? He said, well, he said the transition, the way it actually happened was um, that it began on the 1st of January. I've forgotten what year it was. And he said, New Year's Eve is a big, a big social event in Russia. So we all woke up with vodka hangovers and went out to find that prices had quadrupled overnight is that anybody who didn't have a strong link to the countryside so they could actually get food starved to death, and that included mm. a large number of his own professorial staff. And the number of people who died in that transition, it, you know, it's, it's hard to get any accurate handle on something like that, of course, but you, you, we'd number it in the millions as you might number most Russian tragedies in the millions. Plus you had the mafia taking over and some of the old party bosses turning from being your socialist boss to your capitalist boss. Uh, 
And it got so bad that uh, there's, the, again, an anecdote I've seen from a, a colleague on Twitter, Peter Turchin, a brilliant uh, a mathematical historian. Peter Turchin recounted being a young child and going shopping at some of the markets that sprung up in Russia through this whole period and literally being shoved out of the way by, as a young child, by a member of the mafia coming up in broad daylight, demanding money off an absolutely terrified shopkeeper or storekeeper, taking the money and just marching out again. Basically had protection rackets running the country. You had the oligarchs taking over the, the state resources and the oil and so on. This is the environment into which a little bloke called Vladimir Putin strode in 1999 when Yeltsin finally abandoned. Uh, and, and Putin went from, I think, having a... He was a, a party, the, the, the ruling party uh, candidate at the time, but he went from having 25% of the vote when the election began to more than 50% and was elected. And part of why he was elected was he showed himself as being a strong man who could take these people on, and he did it in quite a brutal uh, suppression of the revolt in Chechen. Yeah. So this is why Vladimir Putin uh, ha still has you know, everything else he has been accused of doing, and I'm sure quite a lot of it is quite valid. He did, he did work in the Secret Service. He'd be quite happy to use Secret Service tactics at various times. He eliminated that low-level mafia. Now, another one has been developed. We've got the oligarchs. Part of his uh, wealth has come out. We, we know how wealthy. We don't know how wealthy he is. We know he's extremely wealthy. He's getting a bit more than his salary. Let's put it that way. So there's a lot of corruption there, et cetera, et cetera. But it's now high-level corruption rather than the low-level stuff that literally was in your face with a gun if necessary uh, during the period of the, the actual transition, which was imposed on the on the um, uh, by the Russians, partly by naive Russian American economists, but also, and this is, I had a, a personal correspondence with Jeffrey Sachs conducted over Twitter about sometime last year when I was taking a tour of, um, of, uh, of journalists around uh, some of the Russian oligarch houses in London. And I made a comment about Sachs and he actually wrote back to me live on Twitter, you know, being very angry about the way I characterized him. Uh, and finally said that he realized once he got involved in the transition, the a lot of people in the American State Department saw this transition as a way to crush Russia anyway. They, right. Russia was still their political rival. Uh, if they can destroy Russia through a transition, so much the better. And he tried to stop the speed at which these processes occurred and failed and saw his ideas, which he now admits were wrong anyway in terms of that fast transition. So he was trying to push ahead with the shock therapy for Russia. Yeah. The Russian state, the, the US State Department was saying, oh, this is great. This isn't going to work. Let's support him. Yeah, yeah let's just destroy Russia's economy through the shock therapy. <laughs> right. And get rid of him, become the, uh, become the sole superpower on the planet. Now... You might, I, I hope people listening to this, I mean, I'm, I've had a lot of generalizations and I'm sure I've heard a lot of detail and so on, but I hope people might realize why this might people make people rather fond of a strong man mm. who pushes back and asserts Russia's uh, sovereignty against this American attempt to destroy them. Yeah, yeah. And, and he is immensely popular, it has to be said, in, in Russia. People sort of don't believe the elections and look, I have every reason why they shouldn't believe the elections because it was pretty hard to be an opponent. But he does have a lot of popularity, particularly amongst young Russians, as far as I understand. Yeah, so, and also he uh, had such a decline in the economy um, through the shock trend, shock trend, far greater decline than the economists expected, of course. Yeah. Uh, given that decline, then Russia, uh, the growth in Russia's economy from that point on has been greater than any other economy on the planet. But how is the economy now? functioning now? I mean, I it has. Ha, how has the economy transitioned now? I mean, we still 
obviously have the role of the mafia, which is not just affecting the Russian economy. It's obviously affecting uh, the, the the world economy. So London house prices, for example. Well, you've got the more oligarchs. The, the oligarchs rose out of being mafia at that time. So they've yeah, yeah. an immense amount of wealth. It's mainly the economy has been focused more upon resources than upon uh, proper industrialization. So they're all very but it's efficient. but it's wealth that they've acquired through yeah, that they're, transition. They're, they're they, 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 they were yeah. opportunity grabbers during yeah. that transition, weren't they? So yeah, so if, the idea the idea of saying, well, okay, you need to demonstrate that how how you acquired that wealth, otherwise we're going to freeze your assets, isn't a bad idea, is it? Well, and that's occasionally Putin does apply that in a rather selective way, of course, but yeah. he does apply it. But what you what you've had in general, the Russians have gone from a state of absolute chaos. Uh, to a state of improved um, economic well-being and more social stability under under Putin, and therefore this, even though lots of them know that he has, you know, he gets rid of opponents. Um, you, you have you have all sorts of you, know, you don't have the freedom one might think you would have if you were living in a Western democracy, in an industrialized Western democracy. Um, and I've another little personal anecdote on that front. I was in. When I was in Russia for that particular speech, I expressed an interest in going to listen to a piano concerto, and I was being taken across uh, the, the uh, marvelous uh, underground system that Russia has to go from where, where I was staying to where the piano concerto was occurring. And we came out of the subway, and there was masses and masses of Russian police and military, uh, and apparently it was, a, it was a, there was a feminist demonstration going on about lesbian rights, and I just happened to walk past. Uh, just by sheer circuit, as we're walking past, where a woman got up and was shouting in Russian, obviously, slogans. She was grabbed by the police who came out of a, a, um, a paddy wagon and they just basically grabbed anybody within reach and I was brushed. <laughs> I was that close to finding myself in a Russian paddy wagon arrested for being a supporter, a member of this demonstration. Of course, I had absolutely no role in. So mm. there is that that element of a, of a police state to it still it's it's which has got nothing to i mean and that is the that's the concern isn't it so if if putin was smart he'd say well okay i understand we to try and transition the economy um as quickly as possible you 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 have to be you have to be tough um he's now trying to do it more slowly and more and more responsibly yeah for sure but i mean they don't want it to take 50 years they'd rather it took 10 or 15 years presumably but but it's feasible it 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 can be making that transition from an underdeveloped economy towards a more developed one over time uh, and in that sense, when you look at, uh, and I've but if you're going to if you're going to do that well, you're going to want to trade on in world markets, aren't you? And you're not going to do that by violating human rights in a big way. Well, China has, uh, but we don't like it very much. And if they go down the same road, which they clearly are, then that's going to make it a more difficult task for him. So well, if, on mean, that on that side of things, playing the tough guy isn't working for him. Well, it's, it is working in terms of giving a degree of stability and and. Uh, for Russia in general, its up, its fortunes go up and down with the oil price because it's so heavily focused upon oil. But mm. the background I'm making is this is with every, all this chaos is within the living memory of a large number of Russians. Yeah. So they, they will make allowances for what's happening right now in a way you wouldn't do if that chaos hadn't occurred and if Putin hadn't played a major role in suppressing the low-level mafia that made life such a misery for Russians during the transition when many, many millions of them starved to death and have that vivid memory of what it was like before he took over. So that that's the background of why he's got such a degree of support right now. And it's also a background as to why Russia is very sceptical and very critical in its dealings with the West. They can see NATO trying to intrude upon its territory. They've been invaded far more than they've invaded in the opposite direction in history as well. So let's get that background into place and then we start considering what's actually going on rather than beating the drums of war, as I can see happening right now. 
Mm. And I guess, you know, the end game is that they do want to be a, a, a market economy. They understand uh, the, the direction they want to take, which is the, the, the direction the West would like them to take as well. It's just a question of how you get there. In fact, in that sense, they're probably more pro-market than a lot of American teenagers are these days because the inequality mm. in, uh, in, in the structural inequality and the extent to which their needs are ignored uh, in in Europe, America, rather than to some extent taken account of in in Russia, uh, you know, is enough to mean that the you know the America American teenagers apparently victim social capitalism is going to fail during their lifetimes. So we're back in the same old bloody um, mess we were in the 1800s in that sense, with uh, people not uh, not respecting capitalism. In, in that sense, I think there's probably a higher respect for it now, even given this chaos that they went through to get there in Russia than there is uh, in the West. Well, Alexander Nikasov, the guy I spoke to, the former Kremlin advisor, said it's all going to blow over. And I think he's I think he's probably right. You know, it's sort of like right. every, everyone's puffing their chests and it'll all blow over. And uh, and, you know, we can go back to uh, tolerating each other uh, was the expression. Which is what we need to do, which is why I think that's why I'm doing a bit of a background. Let's understand where the Russians are coming from. And in that, that background, not not respond to every little uh, provocation that occurs right now, particularly given the capacity that we have uh, learnt that our own political leaders have to be trusted with intelligence, which is not at all, in fact, treated with incredible scepticism. Speaking of somebody who uh, was... Uh, were it not for the election of the Whitlam government, I would have been a draft resistor in Australia because I knew where the Vietnam War came from and I wasn't about to fight on the American side in that war. Right, we're going off definitely into another conversation there. Uh, good to talk as always, Steve. Thanks for putting us, uh, you know, straight on all of that. I think uh, it's going to be interesting to a lot of people who haven't read their history books and perhaps don't understand the situation. Let's hope so. And next time on the Debunking Economics podcast, we look at land. It's a fixed resource. Do we account for it accurately in free markets, given that it has so many uses, but often ends up as an apartment block, giving a very good return to the landowner? What other uses and how can it be accounted for in free market economics? That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.